Toronto, Canada. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg. Grab a stool and come warm yourself by the fire. There are stories to be told and you are among friends. The world's leading expert on near-death experiences is here in hour one. Dr. Bruce Grayson will discuss some of the latest evidence and studies concerning NDEs. Coming up in the second hour, Understanding Biblical Ages and the End of Days with Ali Siadatan from Think Again Productions. Carlos Kajina is my technical producer. Ryan White is the live stream producer, and we are live streaming tonight on YouTube. The YouTube channel is Strange Planet. Please hit that red sub button. Now, before we get rolling, I just I have to mention this. I've been champing at the bit all evening. So at dinner tonight, we're seated around the kitchen table, and uh, the mighty Aphrodite casually mentions maybe she'd like to get rid of the microwave. And we only use it to make popcorn and to reheat coffee and, you know, warm things up occasionally. And it takes up a little too much space on the kitchen counter. So we're not big fans of the microwave oven. And then a couple of hours later, the mighty Aphrodite is emptying the dishwasher and she's washed that big glass round dish you know, the one that sits in the microwave and it spins and spins around. It's kind of like a, a lazy Susan. Anyway, she takes it out of the dishwasher and she goes to put it back inside the microwave. She opens the door and the microwave light doesn't come on. And then she notices the digital clock on the microwave isn't working. It's not lit up. The microwave is completely dead. Maybe it's the outlet, she thinks. So she plugs in the tea kettle It has a blue light on the tea kettle when it's plugged in, and it lights up. It's fine. It's not the outlet. So she tries plugging the microwave into another outlet. Nothing. It's dead. It is now an ex-microwave oven. It is deceased. So like two hours earlier, she said, let's get rid of the microwave, and now it's gone. It's done, and she's walking around the house just before I went to air. She can't get this out of her head. She goes, I gave the microwave the evil eye. (laughs) I hexed the microwave. It's either an incredible coincidence or is this maybe what they mean by the power of intention? I, I don't know, but it's a remarkable coincidence if that's the case. I'm not sure what happens to old appliances. Where do they go after they give up the ghost? Anyway, maybe there's a microwave heaven. But there's no question that the most profound question and mystery that has dogged mankind since, well, forever, is what happens after we die. It's really the only important question, the most important question, right? What happens after we die? What happens in the moments after we breathe our last? What happens to consciousness? Does the near-death experience, perhaps, offer a glimpse of an afterlife? Is it a mere trick of an oxygen-deprived brain? Well, we're going to discuss that over the next hour. Dr. Bruce Grayson is a professor emeritus of psychiatry and neurobehavioral sciences at the University of Virginia School of Medicine. He served on the medical school faculty at the universities of Michigan, Connecticut, and Virginia. He was co-founder and president of the International Association for Near-Death Studies and editor of the Journal of Near-Death Studies, a distinguished life fellow 
of the American Psychiatric Association. He's received national awards for his medical research, and his latest book is called After a Doctor Explores What Near-Death Experiences Reveal About Life and Beyond. Dr. Bruce Grayson, welcome to the program. How are you, sir? I'm great, Richard. Thank you for having me on the show tonight. My pleasure. So talk to me a little bit about, uh, you know, as a man of science and, and growing up, your father was a chemist, another man of science. Did the, 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 the question of what happens after we die ever pop up in the Grayson household and how was it handled? Actually, it never did, Richard. Uh, we grew up in a family that believed in the physical world and we never talked about anything else. We weren't opposed to it. We just just never occurred to us that there was anything else. So we thought that what you see is what you get, and when you die, that's the end of it. And that was fine with us. It never occurred to us to think about something else. So would it be fair to call you then a hardened skeptic and a materialist through and through? I was certainly a materialist, yes. I was also a skeptic, but we had nothing to compare with what we thought was the truth. I certainly was open to considering other ideas, but I didn't have any. We just assumed that the material world was all there was. I went through college and medical school with that mindset. And then 50 years ago, approximately, that all changed. And you begin the story with a wonderful story about a spaghetti stain on your tie. You're enjoying this spaghetti dinner. The phone rings. I guess you're kind of startled. You spill a little spaghetti on your tie. And that really changes the whole trajectory of your life. Tell me about that. Well, it did. This is... Just a month or so into my internship, I was a brand new doctor, kind of terrified and trying to look more professional than I felt. And I was actually eating dinner in the hospital cafeteria, and a pager went off on my belt, and it startled me. I wasn't prepared for it. So I kind of dropped my fork, and the spaghetti sauce spilled on my tie. So I I quickly tried to wipe it off and ended up smeared a little bigger answered the page, and it was a patient in the emergency room that had been admitted with an overdose. And it was my job as the psychiatrist on call to go down and evaluate her. I didn't want to take the time to try to find a new tie, so I just put on my white lab coat and buttoned it up to cover the tie so no one would see that there was a stain on it. I then went down to the uh, emergency room. Uh, I saw the patient, and she was pretty unconscious. I called her name. I tried to shake her, and she was totally unresponsive. So I heard that her roommate had brought her in and was waiting for me down the hall about 50 yards away uh, to talk with me. So I went down to talk to the roommate. I got from the inf- information from the roommate about what was going on in the patient's life, what stressors she had, what she might have taken for an overdose. And after about 15 or 20 minutes, I thanked her and sent her home and went back to talk to the patient, and she was still out cold. So she was going to be admitted to the intensive care unit overnight, and I arranged to see her in the morning after she woke up. Well, when I went there the next morning, she was awake, but she was just barely awake, very drowsy. So I walked into the room and uh, knocked on the door, uh, touched her lightly on the arm and, and said, you know, Holly, I'm, I'm Dr. Grayson. And she said, I know who you are. I remember you from last night. Well, that kind of shocked me because I, I couldn't imagine how that could be. So I said to her, oh, I'm surprised. I thought you were... Uh, out cold when I talked to you last night. And she said to me, not in my room. I saw you talking to my roommate down the hall. Mm. Well, that that just blew me away. I couldn't imagine what she was talking about. Uh, So I I tried 
to the guest room. I said to her, you mean the nurses told you I talked to your roommate? And she opened her eyes then and looked at me dead in the face and said, no, I saw you. Uh, I was just stunned. I couldn't imagine how that could possibly be. And she saw my confusion and then went on to tell me that she saw me and she told me where her roommate and I were sitting in the room, uh, what we were saying, and the fact that I had, it was a hot room, it was the middle of the summer, and I unbuttoned my coat so I wouldn't sweat so much, and she saw the stain. And she told me about the stain on my tie. Uh, that just, I couldn't understand that. The only way that could happen is if she had left her body and come down with me to the other room, and that made no sense to me. As far as I could tell, I was my body. So I, I just couldn't imagine how this could be. But I wasn't there to deal with my confusion. I had to deal with hers. Right, so right. So I, I helped her talk about her suicidal thoughts and what was going on in her life. And then I tried to put it out of my mind. And as the days went on and I got some distance from it, I just couldn't believe it. I, I said, there must be a trick somehow. I don't know how it happened, but this, this can't be real. And that's the way it was for a few years in my mind. Uh, I just couldn't face that this had really happened. Did that incident just stay with you? Like, did you think about it, dwell on it, like, day after day? Uh, for a while. And then I just pushed it to the back of my mind as one of those weird things that you just can't explain. Right. But then, then a few years later, in 1975, Dr. Raymond Moody came to join me at the University of Virginia. And he had just written a book called Life After Life, in which he gave us the term near-death experience and described what these experiences were like. And in reading his book and talking to Raymond, I realized this wasn't just one event that one psychiatric patient had told me. This is part of a larger syndrome that millions of people all over the world had. I still couldn't understand it, but being a scientist, I thought, I've got to look at this. I've got to figure out what's going on here. Right. And I am 50 years later still trying to figure it out. There was another suicide, attempted suicide, a gentleman by the name of Henry. Yes, who tried to, it's graphic, he tried to kill himself by shooting himself in the head, survived right. miraculously. Yeah, yeah. This uh, was just a few months after I met the, the first patient, Holly. And he had been uh, depressed because his parents had both died, and he didn't want to live without them anymore. So he started drinking, and when he got good and drunk, he decided to kill himself. So he went to the cemetery where they were buried with his hunting rifle, and after a long time lying down on their grave, he pointed the gun at his chin and pulled the trigger and blew the right half of his face off, somehow miraculously missing his brain. As he described it to me, as soon as he shot the gun, he left the cemetery and found himself in a different realm, a beautiful realm, and he saw his parents walking towards him and he was overjoyed to see them, and they seemed happy to see Tim, too. His mother said to his father, look, here comes Henry. But as they got closer to him, his mother looked at him and said, oh, Henry, now look what you've done. Mm -hmm. and at that point, he woke up back in the cemetery in a pool of blood under his head, thought he'd better get some help, so he started crawling back to his car. Someone saw him there and, and put him in a truck and drove him to the hospital right away where he was admitted, he was given some plastic surgery to replace that part of his face. And then a few days later, he was transferred to the psychiatric unit where I was his doctor. I expected to see this sad, depressed, suicidal man, but instead, he was rather cheerful and glad to be alive. And I just couldn't make sense of this. So I asked him, you know, why, what's changed in your life? And he said, well, now that I know where my parents are, 
I feel okay about them. And I can see how important it is for me to keep going. And he was so pleased with uh, his life now that he started telling the other patients how wonderful life was. Well, that, again, was surprising to me, but I could dismiss this as just a psychiatric patient's hallucinations. Maybe it was part of his grief. He was drinking. Maybe he was hallucinating. But I didn't give as much credence to that. Right. You mentioned the previous suicide attempt with Holly, I believe her name was. Was she also transformed by her near-death experience or her out-of-body experience? Well, unfortunately, I didn't follow up with her. At the time, that was years before I knew anything about near-death experiences, and the experience with her was so unnerving to me, I just wanted to put it out of my mind. So after she was um, admitted to the hospital, I didn't see her again, and she was soon lost to follow-up. So I don't know what happened to her. But So then you started sort of traveling from hospital to hospital, university to university, state to state, looking for answers. And what sort of commonalities did you start to record and recognize? What was happening to these people time and time again? Well, as unnerving as these experiences were, I realized that there was something serious going on here, and I had to try to understand it. So I tried to collect as many experiences as I could, and I did that partly by writing articles about it, and people would contact me to share their stories. But I realized I was getting a biased sample doing that because those are people who chose to contact me, and it might not be the same as people who choose not to tell me about it. So I also studied patients in the hospitals where I was working, of all patients who were admitted with a cardiac arrest or a suicide attempt or some other close brush with death. And I asked all of them about what had happened to them while they were unconscious or while they were pronounced dead. And I soon collected a large number, hundreds of these near-death experiences, and I found some similarities. They almost all described a sense of leaving their physical bodies, sometimes watching their bodies down below, entering some other realm that didn't seem like the physical world to them, where they were overwhelmed by a sense of peace and well-being. They often describe seeing a loving being of light that was not like a lamp or a bulb or the sun, but a, a really living being. Some interpreted that as a deity. Some did not. They just called it a being of light. Some saw deceased loved ones. They often went through a life review, and at some point, they came to a decision to return back to life or were told to come back to life against their will. And for me as a psychiatrist, the most profound aspect of this was that it changed them afterwards, their attitudes, their values, their beliefs, their behaviors. And I soon learned after studying these people for years that these after effects did not go away. Did it change their physical appearance in any way? I can't say it changed their physical appearance, but it certainly changed their behavior, how they related to other people, what they thought was important to do with their lives. And as you say, this was a permanent or appeared to be a permanent change in behavior, attitude. It wasn't just something that, you know, that transformed them maybe for a period of months and then they reverted back to their old mindset. This permanently changed the trajectory of their lives. Right. I I talked to people who were in their 90s who had the experience when they were teenagers and they say it was like it was yesterday. I've never gone back to the way I was before. Now, you know, being brought up as a skeptic, I had some doubts in my mind about whether they were telling the truth or not, or they were just fooling themselves. So recently, I decided to go back and contact people I had interviewed in the 1980s and interview them again and see if they had the same types of after effects 
And in fact, what I found was that they were identical. There was no difference in the after effects that they told me about 1980 and what they told me now in the, in the 21st century. The after effects had continued with the same strength as they were originally. Is there a difference when someone dies or has a near-death experience following a sudden, let's say, a car crash or some sort of an accident versus someone, let's say, they're languishing with some disease or, you know, they have heart problems? Is there a difference there? There actually is, Richard. A part of many people's near-death experience is a sense of time slowing down and your thoughts speeding up. And another part is this life review. And people whose near-death experience is very unexpected and sudden have those elements very strong in them, whereas people who are preparing for death, who either know they have a terminal illness or are attempting suicide, don't often have that sense of time slowing down and thoughts speeding up. And they also don't have the life review, partly because they've already done that before the close brush with death. They've gone through reviewing their lives in the days or weeks or months before this. Interesting. Interesting. So this idea of time, this time dilation or whatever you want to call it, time speeding up and yet there is this clarity of mind. Right. But the other thing that we hear about often is during, let's say, a car crash, time seems to slow down. It's almost as if the car crash is happening in slow motion. So how do you account for the seeming disparity there? I'm not sure I can account for it, but I've found that it does hold true across near-death experiences across cultures and across the decades, across the centuries. We have accounts of near-death experiences going back to ancient Greece and Rome that sound like the ones we hear today. And in many experiences where there was a sudden accident, people describe time slowing down so they have time to figure out how to survive this crash. There was a graphic illustration of this. A Swiss geology professor at the Zurich Polytechnic Institute back in the 1800s had fallen as he was climbing the Alps and described falling down 60 feet, repeatedly crashing into the rocks. And he reported that he had previously watched people fall and it was terrifying to him to watch people fall. But when he was falling, it was totally blissful. He was detached from his body. He watched his body crash and time seemed to slow down for him, get slower and slower the faster he fell. So he could figure out how to twist around in midair so he would land in a snowdrift rather than on the rocks. And he had time to think about whether he should take his glasses off so he wouldn't break them. He thought about the loved ones he was leaving behind. And all this happened in a matter of a few seconds while he was falling. Dr. Grayson, I'm going to jump in here. We're going to take a time out when we come back. I think people will be fascinated to know how that experience affected one of the greatest minds of all time, Albert Einstein. Back with more of my conversation with Dr. Bruce Grayson as we discuss near-death experiences right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Big Brother is listening, and so are you, to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Dr. Bruce Grayson is with us. His new book, After, A Doctor Explores What Near-Death Experiences Reveal About Life and Beyond. Before the break, we were talking about Albert Heim, I believe, who had a fall in Switzerland, describing this strange effect with time, how time seemed to slow down, and yet the clarity of his mind and his ability to think seemed to speed up. And this was back in the late 19th century, 
And this account apparently influenced Albert Einstein. Tell me about that. Right. Well, as you said, Albert Heim had this experience where as he fell faster and faster, his time seemed to dilate and get slower and slower. And he was so impressed with this experience that he started telling all of his students at the Zurich Polytechnic Institute where he taught geology about this. And this happened in the 1890s. And about 10 years later, he has one of the students, the teenage Albert Einstein. And he told that class, as he did all his classes, about his experience. And then about 15 years later, Einstein wrote his theory of relativity in which he postulated that as we go faster and faster, approaching the speed of light, time gets slower and slower and dilates, just as it did for Albert Heim in his experience. Fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. You mentioned the Life Review a little earlier. Yes. And, yes. Um, you know, I have talked before and I've told you one of my favorite movies is Albert Brooks, the, the movie where he dies and has, it's called Defending Your Life. Yes. And so he goes to, after death, he has to face this Life Review and he's appointed, uh, it's almost like a trial. I think the prosecuting attorney is played by, uh, is it Lee Grant? And he's defended by Rip Torn, fantastic yes. actor. Yes. And it's an awkward situation. He sits there in front of his movie screen, and every major incident is projected on that screen. And he sees how he interacted with his fellow human beings, and some of it's awkward, and some of it's embarrassing and even painful. What did people tell you? about that life review? Well, they often say things that are consistent with that, that they review their entire life in exquisite detail. They talk about seeing details they didn't realize at the time they were going through the actual events earlier in their lives. And they start judging what they did in their lives and seeing what's important and what's not, what was good and what was a mistake. They don't often report being judged by some other person, by a deity or by something else. They report judging themselves. And the surprising thing about some near-death experiences is that they're also experienced through the eyes of someone else as well. Let me give you an example of this. A fellow named Tom Sawyer, which was his real name, had a near-death experience in his 30s when a truck he was working under fell and crushed his chest. And he remembered in his life review he had at that time being a teenager, a hot-headed hot rodder, and he was driving his truck down the street and a drunk man happened to run in front of his truck, and he almost hit the man. Well, he was furious, so he stopped the truck, rolled down his window, and started swearing at the man. And the man, unfortunately being drunk, reached his hand in the truck window and slapped Tom across the face. And that was too much for this teenager. So he opened the truck door, got out, and started punching the man till he left him a bloody heap in the median strip, and then got back in his truck and drove off. Well, when Tom then reviewed this in his life review... He saw the event not only through his own eyes, but through the eyes of the drunk man as well. And he saw his own face, Tom's face, getting redder and redder, and then felt each one of Tom's 32 blows on the man's face. And he felt his nose getting bloodier and his teeth going through his lower lip. And he felt the embarrassment and the humiliation. And Tom, now in his life review, is feeling this from his own perspective and from the man's. And he realizes from this that we are all part of the same thing. It's like looking at your hand, and if you look at the, the five fingers, it look like they're different things. But when you look at the whole hand, you see they're actually attached at the palm. And he comes away from this experience thinking that we are all part of the same things, part of something greater than ourselves, and that what you do to somebody else, you do to yourself as well. 
And this leads most near-death experiencers to come back with a sense of the golden rule being what goes on in the world. It's not anymore just a goal we should strive for, to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But it's a law of nature, like the law of gravity. This is the way the universe works. So it is the life review, then, that seems to be responsible for this transformative change in people rather than just simply the near-death experience or the out-of-body experience or you know being in the tunnel in your estimation then is it the life review that causes the change well that's what i thought when i heard people talking about the life review and from a, the perspective of a psychiatrist i thought well of course you're reviewing your life you're coming to terms with it and you learn from that but being a scientist i actually did some studies of this i looked at correlating the different parts of the near-death experience with the degree of the after-effects. And I found that the life review was not, in fact, the most important part of it. What seemed to be most highly associated with the profound after-effects was just a sense of feeling loved and protected by this being of light and a sense of being part of a universe that's really benign and a friendly place to be. And the fact that when we die, what follows is not something to be feared. And this gives people a totally different sense of what they're all about, what it means to be human, and what life and death are all about. And that's the most important part in changing their lives, making these huge transformations. What do people tell you about the moment of death, whether it's a violent death or a drowning or something that one would expect to be perhaps painful or even incredibly traumatic people often just die from the trauma of an accident or a violent death but what do people remember about that moment when let's say the last breath leaves their body are they in pain what do they feel well it's true that many deaths are uh, associated with pain and or fear but people report that at the moment of death you lose those feelings and you suddenly become overwhelmed by this feeling of peace and well-being. And you have a sense of dissociating from your physical body. So the physical body may be in this painful state, but you are not anymore. And they report that they tend to look at the body in a dispassionate way, as if it's not them, but something they were associated with for a while, like taking off a coat. And in this new state they are without the body, they feel warmth and loved and protected, and it's a totally different feeling from what they were doing, going through just before they died. Do, do all or most of people who experience a near-death um, or encounter a near-death experience, do they all, is it also accompanied by an out-of-body experience? Uh, almost half of them have an out-of-body experience. Um, many just don't describe that sort of thing. They just describe... Um, having this moment of death and then finding themselves immediately in some other realm. But almost half describe leaving their bodies and hanging around in the physical world for a while, trying to figure out what's going on, and then at some point get drawn into this other realm. Are they, are they floating above their body? Are they able to walk through walls? What do they tell you? Often they are. They often are moving around, um, and they often will look down at this body and at first not recognize it as their own. Uh, they are surprised when they realize that is their body and they're no longer in it. Um, they, If they do try to walk through walls, they often find that they can. Um, 
They can sometimes communicate with people who are still alive, but often they can't. They will try and not make any impact on the people around them. Have there been detailed studies regarding uh, you know, this out-of-body experience? So, for example... I mean, we hear a lot of anecdotal stories. Oh, I uh, I overheard the surgeons talking about you know their vacation in Ohio, right. or when I was you know when they I was told that my heart had stopped or that there was no brain activity. We hear anecdotal, but what about actual data? What do we have? Well, that's a great question, Richard. Because as you said, a lot of these stories are not corroborated. We just hear someone say, "I left my body," and I heard the surgeon saying this and that. Um, and you can say, okay, maybe you did, maybe not, maybe it was a fantasy. But in some cases, in fact, a great number of cases now, people describe seeing things that were totally unexpected, that they couldn't have guessed, that we sometimes later find out from the, the surgeons or other people involved was completely accurate. And let me give you an example of this. One fellow I knew who was a 55-year-old truck driver had emergency cardiac bypass surgery. He had quadruple bypass surgery. And in the op- during the operation, he says that he left his body, hovered above it, and saw his surgeon flapping his elbows as if he was trying to fly. And when he told me this, I thought, this is absurd. I've been a doctor for 30 years at this point, and I'd never heard or seen of anything like this. So I assumed he was hallucinating because of the anesthesia he was given. But he insisted it was true. So later on, with his permission, I talked to his surgeon. And I asked him about this, this thing that the, the, the patient claimed he saw. And the surgeon rather sheepishly said, yes, that's, that's true. I developed this strange habit that I've never seen anybody else use, but I let my assistant start the procedure while I get down my gowns and gloves and get everything sterile. And then I walk into the operating room and to, to make sure I don't touch anything that's not in the sterile field, I put my hands flat against my chest where I know they won't touch anything. And I point things out to my assistants with my elbows so I don't touch anything with my fingers. And he demonstrated for me, and it's just like the patient said. He was flapping his arms around as he was trying to fly. And there's no way the patient could have seen that. His eyes were taped shut for the operation, and he was unconscious. He was totally anesthetized. And yet he described this accurately. We have many, many examples like this of people who describe accurately things they saw and heard while they were ostensibly unconscious. Now, you asked about experiments, and in fact, we have tried some experiments. There have been, I believe, six experiments now done in in different hospitals where researchers have planted visual targets above eye level pointing up so they can only be seen by looking down from the ceiling. And they do this in rooms where people are likely to have near-death experiences, such as um, intensive care units or cardiac care units. Dr. Grayson, I'll just interrupt uh, here. As Pardon the interruption. I'll just uh, interject and we'll, uh, we'll take a quick time out. When we come back, we'll talk about the results sure. of those experiments. Can't wait to hear this. Dr. Bruce Grayson, after a doctor explores what near-death experiences reveal about life and beyond right here on The Conspiracy Show, if you're in the live chat on YouTube. Love your questions. We'll get uh, Ryan to uh, read those when we come back. Stay tuned. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. All right, Dr. Grayson, you were telling us before the break these experiments where 
to test the, I guess, the veracity of these accounts of -of out-of-body experiences, they would place a target above eye level, let's say on some sort of a piece of medical equipment uh, in in an operating theater. Uh, so it would only be visible if you were looking down from above. What was what were the results of these experiments? Well, there, as I said, there have been some six experiments like this. The largest was done by Dr. Sam Parnia at New York University. And unfortunately, we were hoping that there would be um, great results from this, and we didn't find anything really. Uh, in about 2,000 patients that have been studied so far, there were a few who described something like a near-death experience, none described being able to see the target. Now, if they had claimed to see the target and described it inaccurately, we would take that as evidence that they don't really see when they're outside of their bodies. But they didn't, in fact, see the target, so we would basically have no evidence for whether they can or cannot. So the the experiments did not show anything. Now, when I describe this experiment to near-death researchers, they're astounded at our naivete. They say, if you were out of your body for the first time in your life, with your body being down, being operated on, why would you look around the room for some irrelevant target that you didn't even know was there? So they think it's got kind of ridiculous. And what do you think of that? Does that sound reasonable to you? It does. It does. I think it was a, a great idea, but it didn't pan out. Um, so how would you like to see maybe the next experiment conducted with, re- with regards to these OBEs? Well, you need to somehow motivate the patients to be looking for the target. And one way to do that is to tell them there there will be a target somewhere in the room and they want them to identify it. And, of course, you can't do that with people who have unexpected near-death events. Right. It seems to me there was a very famous anecdotal um, case where a woman in an operating theater died on the table. And then later she she traveled during her out-of-body experience, near-death experience, she traveled through the hospital up several floors and looked out a window and saw a shoe on a windowsill several floors above. There's no way that would have been visible um, under any normal circumstances. Do you remember that case? Yes, I do. Uh, uh, Kimberly Clark, who was a uh, social worker at the Harborview Hospital in Seattle, reported this. The patient was brought in in cardiac arrest, uh, totally unconscious, um, resuscitated and admitted to the hospital. And she described having a near-death experience uh, in which she left her body and, as you said, traveled around outside and saw a red tennis shoe on the other side of the hospital on a window ledge. And we have no idea how they could have gotten there. But uh, Kim Clark, who was her social worker, decided to look for it. And she, in fact, went around from room to room, pressing her face against the windows before she finally found it. And it was exactly as the patient described. Uh, You mentioned anesthesia. Yes. And I'm wondering how anesthesia has impacted reports of NDEs and OBEs, because one of the things that anesthesia can cause is, you know, memory lapses. So, in other words, since the... I don't know if there's any way to track this, but since the advent of anesthesia, anesthesiology, is there been a decline in the report of NDEs? Uh, actually, we don't know because before the 1980s or 1990s, nobody was talking about these phenomena. If you look back in the medical literature, maybe once every two or three decades, there'd be a report of what we now call a near-death experience. 
but people just didn't talk about them back in those days. Uh, so we don't know what was what it was like before there was widespread anesthesia. What do you think the effect might be, though? Well, as you mentioned, anesthesia can often interfere with memory, as can many other things that are associated with near-death experiences. For example, there are traumatic experiences. We know that traumatic events are harder to remember uh, accurately later on. They tend to get distorted. They're intensely emotional experiences, and we know that emotion tends to distort experiences over time. So we would expect these near-death experience memories to change over the decades. And we actually did some research on that as well. And again, I mentioned that I, I had interviewed people in the 1980s, and then again in the 21st century to see whether their accounts had changed at all. And we found that the memories of their NDEs were the same now as what they told me 30, 40 years ago. So the memories do not change at all over the years. Fascinating. All right. We, uh, this is a short segment, but we will come back and uh, we're going to get to some questions in our YouTube live chat. I'll get uh, Ryan White, my live stream producer, to weigh in with those. Dr. Bruce Grayson stays with us for a few moments yet. And again, the author of After, a doctor explores what near-death experiences reveal about life and beyond. Don't go away. Providing the evidence and letting you draw your own conclusions. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Just a reminder, coming up at the top of the hour, documentary filmmaker Ali Siadatan from Think Again Productions will be here and we'll talk about the biblical ages. There are seven, actually, in the Bible and obviously culminating with the end of days followed by the Messianic Kingdom. And we'll talk to uh, Ali about that. What do the end of days or the end times really mean? Right now, Dr. Bruce Grayson stays with us. I'm going to throw it over to my live stream producer, Ryan White. Ryan, we've got some interesting questions in the in the YouTube live chat. We sure do. Uh, Quantum Reality, our viewer, wants to know how many of these near-death experiences or coincidences will it take before they're recognized by fact as fact by science? Interesting. So anecdotal evidence, how important is that? I think it's critically important. You know, sometimes people uh, diminish the, the importance of, of anecdotes, but in fact, all science starts with anecdotes, which are basically observations of what's going on. Uh, without anecdotes, we have no, no science. Um, we start with anecdotes, and by collecting a large number of them, we find patterns and then develop hypotheses from the patterns to test. Um, but without the anecdotes, we have no, no enough to study. So I think the anecdotes are critically, critically important. They don't by themselves prove anything, but they're the starting point for collecting more and more information about them. And and there are there has been so many documented cases now. Uh, is that is that causing your your uh, skeptical colleagues to finally stand up and take notice, or do they remain do they remain skeptical? Well, for the most part, the, that doesn't by itself does not uh, impress some uh, some uh, skeptics. Uh, we have now many, many thousands of near-death experiences that are consistent, and the consistency is certainly important. But we need to start ruling out the hypo- other hypotheses that have been proposed to explain near-death experiences. And we've been doing that by testing them one by one, one by one. The various hypotheses about lack of oxygen to the brain, drugs given to patients. Uh, electrical activity in the brain. We've slowly been collecting data to test all those hypotheses and ruling them out. 
All right, Ryan, you have another question from the YouTube live chat. Yeah, this is an interesting one from GBGN1, and he wants to know if children have different near-death experiences than adults. Good question. It is a good question. Um, Certainly, near-death experiences occur to children as well as to adults, and they tend to be very similar to those of adults, with a few exceptions. And one is that many adults will see deceased loved ones in the NDE, and children don't have that much exposure to people in their families dying, so they tend not to report as many of these encounters with deceased loved ones. However, children will often report seeing figures that they describe to their parents that are unidentified to the children, and the parents can recognize them as the child's grandparents who had died before the child was born, and so forth. Thank you, Ryan. Uh, Dr. Wilder Penfield, a great Canadian um, neuroscientist, was able to and I believe there have been other studies. It seemed to me I recall one in Switzerland where they were able to reproduce um, an, an out-of-body experience by stimulating certain cortexes within the brain. Talk to me about that. Does that diminish if they can if they can produce an OBE through electrical stimulation? Does that prove? somehow, perhaps, that that OBEs aren't real? Well, let me separate that into two parts. One is, can they do that? And I think the answer is no. Uh, Dr. Penfield did some great work with stimulating parts of the brain and seeing what happened. And it's been reported that he produces near-death out-of-body experiences when he stimulated the right temporal lobe. And in fact, he did not do that. He stimulated the temporal lobes of more than 2,000 patients, and two of them described something that was at least vaguely like an out-of-body experience. One said, I feel as if I'm half in and half out. And the other one said, I feel almost as if I was leaving my body, which is not the same as a sense of being out of the body and being able to watch your body from above. Now, since then, more recently, uh, Olaf Blanke in Switzerland has claimed to be able to produce near-death experiences and out-of-body experiences by stimulating the temporal lobe. But if you actually read his accounts, he describes patients having um, a sense that their legs are getting shorter or longer or that they're falling off the table. And these are, these are certainly illusions of the body, but they're not near-death experiences. But having said all that, even if we did show that stimulation of the temporal lobe was associated with, with out-of-body experiences, that would not establish that they cause the out-of-body experience. Everything that we experience is mediated by the brain. That doesn't mean the brain causes it. When you hear an orchestra playing, you hear that with the, with the help of the brain. That doesn't mean the brain is causing the music. It's just translating it for you. Right, right. And, and just because you can uh, produce an effect, a uh, phenomenon through electrical stimulation, doesn't necessarily discount that, that it's not real. It's, yes, it's similar to when people take psychedelic drugs and have mystical experiences. One explanation is that the drugs cause the experience. Another is that the drugs permit you to free yourself from the brain and have the experience. That's interesting. Uh, it reminds me of uh, you know why ayahuasca and, and things yes. like that. And 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 I, I'm told that one of the uh, I guess DMT. I, I I presume that's an endorphin, and that the brain does release DMT at the time of death. 
So how do you respond to critics who would suggest that that's what's happening, that the brain is releasing DMT or that combined with perhaps uh, a lack of oxygen? Yeah. Uh, actually, DMT is not an endorphin. It's a psychotropic um, drug ah, that okay. produces hallucinations. Um, and there are speculations that the brain produces DMT um, at the time of death. There's really no way to test that because it's produced, if it is, in very small amounts in a part of the brain that we don't, we don't know where. So trying to look at some unknown part of the brain for a, a small group of pieces of chemical dirt while someone's in a near-death crisis is virtually impossible to do. However, again, you have the question of whether if this chemical is associated with the event, is it causing it or just permitting it to happen? Right, right. So as a man of science, where are you at now in terms of your understanding of what the mind is, what 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 is consciousness, what happens to consciousness after death? Well, I've only been doing it for 50 years, so I can't say I understand. <laughs> is <much>. that all? <laughs> uh, well, I can tell you this. I started out with a model that the mind is what the brain does, that all our thoughts and feelings and perceptions are created by the brain. And I can no longer believe that because of all the data that contradicts that. And not only from near-death experience, there are other experiences we have as well that could not happen if the brain was causing the mind. So I don't know what the mind is, but it seems like it can, under certain circumstances, separate itself from the brain and function independently. Um, I have no idea how, and that's a real problem with, with this idea. But we also have a problem with the idea that the brain creates the mind. We have no idea how an electrical or chemical process in the brain can create a thought. No one has ever come up with a hypothesis for that. So are you inclined to believe at this point that consciousness exi- exists outside of the, out of, outside of the body? I can't say that I'm convinced, but the data certainly points strongly in that direction. So if I were a betting man, I would say, yes, consciousness probably can exist independent of the brain. I mean, that, that changes everything, obviously, <laughs> I mean, to say the least. But, yes. how, is that, how has that changed you personally? Are you, are you more spiritual now? Uh, well, I'm not sure what spiritual means, but I certainly tend to believe that there is a part of us that's not physical, and that is probably the more important part of us, uh, a part that may in fact survive after the body dies. If it can function without the brain while we're alive, perhaps it can after we die as well. Uh, so I can't, I can't say that I am a firm believer in that, but I certainly take it very seriously. What this research has done to me is made me very comfortable with not knowing the answers and with the unknown. So uh, let me put it another way. Are you less of a materialist than you were 50 years ago? Definitely. I think the strict materialist interpretation of life is totally inconsistent with the facts. How does that sit with your colleagues uh, when you gather around the Keurig coffee machine at work? Mm-hmm. Uh, do they, I mean, how do they, how do they treat you? It's interesting that you know, doctors are just like everybody else. Some think this is the most fascinating research in the world, and some are embarrassed by it and wish I would go away. But actually, some studies done in Scotland, in Belgium, and in uh, Brazil, as well as in the United States in recent years, have shown that 50% of scientists now believe that the mind and the brain are separate things. 50%. Wow. And to think, it all started with a spaghetti stain. <laughs> 
For me, it did, yes. How do we get a copy of your new book after? Uh, it's available on uh, Amazon, on Barnes & Noble, anywhere books are sold. You can find out more about it in my website, www.brucegrayson.com, where I have links to, to order the books. Uh, but it's available wherever books are sold. And we should point out Grayson is spelled G-R-E-Y-S-O-N, Dr. Bruce Grayson. Com. What a delight. Thank you so much. Thank you, Richard. All right. When we come back, the end times, the end of days. What does it all mean? Ali Siadatan, documentary filmmaker from Think Again Productions, will reveal all. Right here on The Conspiracy Show, my name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away.